for the week of May 16th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 541, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Hold on a second. What? What? Hold. Hmm. And in um, Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Gilch. I have no idea what, what are you doing? I'm eating some delicious sun-made raisins. Oh, oh, okay. I, you I know this is not a cooking show, right? The sun, sun-made raisins are delicious, but I know all raisins grown in California are delicious and worth eating. Why? why where? What, what are you talking about? One of our listeners said, hey, you know, you need to, you need to get some product placement or get some sponsors. Uh, why don't you eat raisins on the show? I said, well, I don't eat on the show. He said, well, well raisins are quiet, you know? I said, okay, I'll eat raisins. And then if SunMade or the California Growers Association is there, maybe they'll say, hey, we'll get them to sponsor this, the Showbiz Sandbox podcast and give us a little of that where we can eat raisins at the top and the bottom of the show. We could have the California Raisin Singers, that group, the Temptations-like group. We could have them on the show singing a song. Maybe they could record our theme song or at least visit and talk about raisins and how delicious they are. It's just a, just a thought, just a thought. Well, well, that's good news because, Michael, I have some, some big, big news for you. Mm-hmm. You know, we are going to be, we're turning the podcast into a nightly entertainment news show on one of the big major networks to take on Entertainment Tonight and Access Hollywood. All it's going right. to be in prime time, in fact. What? What? Yeah. Really? What, what, what's the deal? I don't know anything about this. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Since everything we say at the front of the show actually comes true now, now that I've noticed <laughs> that, uh, we have to just like, you know, we have to shoot for the stars. Let's face it. Well, before we get to that and, 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 and what's on the show this week, last week, again, uh, weeks ago, you said, I want them to release Top Gun in movie theaters. Yes. Right? And they did. Did you go see it? Uh, you do realize I live in California. I was too busy eating raisins to go. No, <laughs> I was, uh, uh, you know, they didn't have uh, open movie theaters until uh, about uh, a month well, ago. It was this weekend. Oh, this weekend, oh, Top oh, Gun oh. was playing. I did not so know you that. Could have, no. Well, Tom Cruise returned to movie theaters. He also returned his Golden Globes. Just as we ended last week, we found out that the you know, everybody was, oh, not enough for the Globes. You got to do more. And NBC says, we believe that they will return someday, even though they're, you know, they're not going to have them back next year. But they will return, and it will happen. But Tom Cruise said, I'm done. And he returned his Golden Globes. So, you know. He's got Top Gun in the theater, and he's got his standards. So good for him. And, you know, the standards are dropping for masking, right? If I'm eating raisins, I don't have to have a mask on because you can't get the raisins through the mask. And as everyone knows, the CDC in the U.S. said, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't need face masks indoors or out in most situations. And Mickey Mouse broke down crying with joy when he heard that because the Disney parks are open worldwide often with limited capacity, everywhere in the world, except for Disneyland Paris. And they're like, this is a game changer for us. They're really hoping that that will help supercharge the theme parks and get people back to going to the parks because they don't have to wear a mask when they're sitting on the rides and walking around. You know, uh, my kids went to a Six Flags amusement park over the weekend, and they said it was a nightmare and a half. Because? Because they let 25% of the people in, Mm-hmm. They sold 100% of the number of fast passes to 25% of the people. So that means like everybody was fast. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So everybody was standing in 
you know, certain rides. They were there for seven hours. They went on two rides. Oh my God. Yeah. They said that they were done. They were like, because so they, they, want, they, they wanted to charge the, the premium price because they only had one fourth of their usual customers. Yeah. Not realizing that just means they'll all be in really long lines and they won't be happy. <laughs> yeah. And, and they, they said that like, you know, on, on roller coasters, they would say, okay, so seats one and two in the roller coaster up front, you get to have a seat, then seats three and four are empty, then seats five and six have. Right. 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 Every so that other just, seat. And, and then they, you know, so it just like took forever to get through. And then they would have to clean every, you know, 10 rides. They'd have to clean and run the thing empty. They, they said it was just, I, I don't know whether Disney's doing it that way, but it is, if that's the way amusement parks are working, I can see it's going to be a very long, hot summer for them. <laughs> well, it's going to be a long episode if we don't get to the gist of it, but that's interesting stuff. Tell us what else are we going to talk about this week? Well, you know how I said everything comes true that we say at the front mm -hmm. of the show? Well, last week on Showbiz Sandbox, we joked about a mega merger, a huge merger, that all the studios were merging into one giant studio. Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we're actually going to discuss a true mega merger, the potential combination of Warner Media and Discovery. No joke. We're, we'll tackle that during Inside Baseball on in theatrical news. Regal, Cineworld signed big deals with more studios, and Gal Gadot goes public with what a jerk director Joss Whedon was to her. We'll also examine executive pay. Deadline looked at how the industry did terrible last year. Nobody made any money. Well, except the CEOs. They did great. Don't worry, Hollywood. The rest of the business world did the exact same thing, so you're off the hook. Not really. In music, the streaming services are adding high def but they're not adding new premiums to pay for it. That's kind of good news. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to enter entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. And I can tell you one thing, Michael, every mm -hmm. time I say that every week, I'm sorry that I came up with that whole entertainment. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. I never should have come up with it. Someone said, that's a little egotistical. I'm like, it's a joke. For God's sake. <laughs> I'm still eating raisins, by the way. They are delicious. Uh, this is for the week ending May 16th. Big asterisk by everything. We were discussing the box office before the show, and Sperling said, you know what, Michael? Nobody else is paying attention to the box office. The numbers are so minimal that they're like, whatever. You know, box office, whatever. <laughs> well, there's like four movies out. It's like this was the first time this week where Warner Brothers released a movie day and date, you know, in theaters and on HBO Max, where they actually had what's referred to as competition, meaning that there was one other new release in theaters this week. Right. You know, in North America, we had, you know, the Chris Rock reboot of Saul known as Spiral. It was the number one movie around the in North America. It made $8.7 million. The Angelina Jolie film fell kind of flat. It's just not a great time for the box office, but we're doing the numbers as best we can. And I think the number one movie around the world is Cliff Walker's, the Chinese film directed by Zhang Yimou, a 1930s thriller. It made another $22 million this week. It's at $158 million worldwide. Right below that is another Chinese film, Break Through the Darkness, an anti-corruption drama that made $20 million, and it's at about $60 million worldwide. Then we have Wrath of Man. That made, I think, $20 million. That's at $45 million worldwide. And then Spiral, 
from the book of Saul. I love, I love that title. So, spiral from the book of Saul. Like it's a like it's a biblical tale or it's 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 part of a love beloved legacy. And people said, "Ah, oh, this is like the sixth Saul film to top the charts in North America. It is a very successful franchise. It made 12 million dollars worldwide on its opening week." Below that is My Love, a Chinese romantic comedy that made $7 million. And then Those Who Wish Me Dead, Angelina Jolie's film directed by Tyler Sheridan, who writes and directs some very good movies. This one did not get the best reviews, but it did make $7 million. That's the, the movie mo- that I was referring to, by the way, the Warner Brothers movie that I was ah, referring to. There you go. It opened to like $2.8 million, $3 million here in the U.S. And people said, oh, that's it. It's DOA, dead on arrival. <laughs> that the the headlines write themselves when the movie is called Those Who Wish Me Dead. Uh, right below that is a Japanese animated film, Detective Conan, The Scarlet Bullet, the latest in the franchise, another $5 million. That's at $71 million worldwide. And then we have about five or six or seven movies that all made $4 million. Godzilla vs. Kong is at $430 million worldwide. The Chinese thriller Home Sweet Home is fading a, a little fast. That made about 35, that's at $35 million. Mortal Kombat reboot, $77 million worldwide. Once Upon a Time in Hong Kong, which is also known by other names, depending on what chart you're looking at, that is at about $40 million. And then we have a new opener. It's, I assume, a romance because it's called 77 Heartwarmings. It's either a romance or a ER story of using those paddles and going clear. I don't know, but it made $4 million on its opening week. You mean a defibrillator? A defibrillator, that's right. Yeah. The unholy Demon Slayer Mugen Train made another $2 million. That's, a, that's done quite well in North America. The season two of that show, you know, that, that, I mean, that's made almost as much as Rhea and The Last Dragon. I mean, that's really surprised me how well it's done here in North America. Uh, but above that is a reissue. Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King made another $4 million in China on its reissue. It's made about $39 million in that country alone with its reissue. I would have loved to have seen it here, but apparently it was only at Alamo Draft House for a limited time, I guess. Worldwide, it looks like that movie is now $1,143,000,000. That's as of today, according to Wikipedia, which was a slightly higher value than, than, than the box office total on the numbers. We had one more movie that opened up this week. Not that grosses were reported, but it's Netflix's Army of the Dead. People, or rather competitors, say it made about $800,000 on its opening week. They estimate that mostly at Cinemark Theaters. It got decent reviews from Zack Snyder. And uh, it's going to open on Netflix in a week. What went wrong or what went right here? Is this just like, I mean, how does this help anyone? If they made a real big proper theatrical release without a... You know, opening one week in Netflix, would more people have gone to see it? Could they have made more money and made this seem like more of a franchise? It actually got pretty good reviews. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I didn't even know it was in theaters. That should tell you something. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I think the publicity on it was pretty poor. I knew it was on Netflix. That much I did know. I also knew that Tig Notaro was actually, uh, I guess her whole, her all of her scenes were redone. Or I'm sorry, there was an actor that was cast, and I guess he got into some, you know, uh, you know, social justice kind of trouble. He was rem- don't make it sound so like oh, whatever. I don't know what it was. It's not like Fox News though. Some I don't know what social- it was. Well, all right, but don't make it sound unimportant. Just say they were removed for some reason, and you know, yeah. Rather well, than they were, removed. if you don't know what it was, it could have been a really bad thing. So then it would be really, make- really bad that I just made light of it. But, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but that said, Tig Notaro was cast. Stepped in. 
Yeah, but all of her scenes were done against a green screen. Wow, that that ain't easy. But the craziest thing about this movie, it got pretty good reviews. People thought, ah, oh, Zack Snyder is kind of fun. Two and a half hours. Yeah. Two no and a half that. hours. That's insane for a zombie. That is wrong. That is, 90 minutes is what a zombie movie should be. A hundred if you've got a lot of art in there. You know, that's that's just crazy. My daughter and I uh, had to go get her vaccine. She, she went to get her vaccine, uh, her second dose. And we were in a parking garage at a hospital. And there were all these white plastic sheets up in different places to like block people off and block rooms mm-hmm. off. And, and I'm, I was very impressed. They created a whole vaccine kind of assembly line there. And she actually turned to me as we were like about to go get that. She said, you know, this, this really just, it, it makes me think of a zombie movie. Oh, absolutely. I thought the same thing with my mom, a pandemic zombie movie when we went to a parking garage next to the hospital. Yeah. That's where she got her jab at. I went to the, the open field near an airport. That's where I got my public jab. So that was great. And I'm two weeks plus on my second jab. So I feel like I have superpowers. Disney certainly has superpowers. They're one of the biggest companies in the world. They're sending mixed signals on day and date and movie windows, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Well, I know we're going to talk a little bit later on about, about their streaming numbers. So they had a an earnings call and they said, oh, we didn't make our numbers. We were supposed to have 109 million subscribers this quarter. And we only got up to 103 million. But you know what? Actually, we're going to release Jungle Cruise day and date on PVOD. So it's going to be <laughs> Disney Plus premiere, meaning you have to pay $30 to see it. We're going to do that in July. We're doing the same thing with Cruella. We're doing the same thing with Black Widow. We're going to be doing, well, actually, we're not going to be doing the same thing with Free Guy or Sh- uh, Shang-Chi, a name that I stumble over every time I try and say it. Those will have a 45-day window, to which I say, if they're going to be an exclusive theatrical release, just don't say how long they're going to be. That's all you got to do. Just don't say it's 45 days. Say it's an exclusive theatrical release. Well, they have to now because 17 days is, you know, people want to know. Do you mean exclusive for a week? Exclusive for a month and a half? Exclusive for three no, months? No, I'm saying, I'm saying that don't say it in your marketing. Say it to the people, you know, yeah, sure. Tell movie theaters. Just don't say it in your marketing. Ah, well, but they want to know, they want to be, they want to use that marketing. The whole point of shortening the window was the idea that when you're marketing a movie, when you're going to segue quicker to DVD, you want them to know it's available on DVD. So available in one month on DVD, you know, they, they don't want to have to market it twice. If they wait three months or six months, then suddenly they got to gear up the machinery to tell you all over again about the movie and remind, that's their argument. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, the studios want to lower the cost of doing business for themselves while hurting other people. That's, that's right. So, so they wanted some good news for Disney plus. So they tossed in jungle cruise into the mix. Cause it's a family friendly film. Free Guy and Shang-Chi are certainly family-friendly-ish. I don't know what the rating is on Free Guy, but they're obviously geared towards slightly older people, not oh, yeah. little kids, unlike Jungle Cruise, which is very family-friendly. So I guess that's the reason why those two will be more proper theatrical releases. Are, are theaters angry? Are they up in arms? Are they confused? You know, at this point, they've. I think theaters are just like, you know what, whatever. <laughs> they've been beaten into submission, I guess. Yeah, you know, I think here's the thing. I think here's the way they're going to try and play it. Hey, remember when you sold me that 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 product at at sixty five percent when it was <laughs> only mine and I was the only one that could sell it, and now you're basically selling it to yourself at a much cheaper rate. Yeah, I'm not paying you sixty five percent for that. Good luck with that for the next Marvel movie. Yeah, well, here's good the luck, thing. Good luck telling them no. Yeah, it's. 
you know, the theaters, until they get back on their feet, are going to have to basically do whatever the studios want. Yep. So, well, Regal and, uh, made a deal. Regal in the U.S., Cineworld in the U.K., they made a new deal with Universal. They also have a deal, I believe, with Disney, but we don't know the details. But we do know the details for Universal. They're slightly different in the two countries. In the U.S., big movies, meaning movies opening like $50 million or more, big movies are exclusive in theaters for 30 days. Smaller movies are only exclusive for 17 days. In the UK, it's 45 and 31. So big movies are exclusive for 45 days, the magic number that we endorse for all movies, and exclusive for 31 days for smaller movies. They both have it backwards. Smaller movies need more time to make money, to spread word of mouth and to catch fire because they don't have the big budgets and the big everything. So people aren't as aware of them. They're going to know when Jungle Cruise hits movie theaters. You don't need 30 days to find out how big, I mean, 17 days to find out how big the audience is. You're going to know right away. Smaller movies might take a while. And you go, oh my God, look at this. It's building or it's doing great or it's holding its legs. You know, that sort of stuff. They need longer. We think it should be 45 days for all movies because when you look at the numbers, most everybody is making most everything they can at by f- within 45 days. Even a big, big movie like Jungle Cruise or Shang-Chi. If it's still going strong, we assume you're not going to be an idiot and yank it from theaters and let it run out a little bit longer because there's more money to be made. But after 45 days, you're going to know 90, 95% of the movies are done. Big or small, no matter what. And for a, a month and a half is plenty quick to bring it to a streaming service. Keep it simple. Keep it easy. You want people to have dependability and to know when to expect a movie for 90% of them, you could say 40, a month and a half, 45 days, and it's on streaming and they would know dependably, yeah, I can see it in theaters or if I want to wait, I can wait you know, a month or two and it'll be there. 17 days is crazy. Something is going to have to happen because there is an infrastructure in place here for movie. You know, there, there are movie theaters out there. If you want to do away with movie theaters, say so. Get rid of them, okay? But don't, I mean, these are multi-billion dollar organizations in some cases. Just say so. But don't, and, you know, we're about to talk about a mega merger. What, you're going to try and make those companies even stronger? Well, then put some regulation around it. To have, comp- to have competition and capitalism, you need regulations and you need Correct. a fair playing field. And that doesn't happen without government regulation. Correct. You need a referee. Yeah. It doesn't work otherwise because the bigger guys will always win. The little guys are still going strong, though. They're still fighting it out. Redbox. Redbox is going public again? Are they going public again? I have I think, no idea. I, I, saw I stopped some paying attention like to Redbox like, as soon as uh, uh, my DVD okay. player stopped working. Well, as soon as you went to streaming. Yeah. So they're still around. There are still people with DVD players. They've got 40,000 kiosks around the country. 39 million people are signed up as a loyalty member. Who knows when the last time was that they went to Redbox. But I see them when I go to Walmart, and they're valued at $700 million. That's what they're floating out to the public. So, yeah, I, I often see, uh, ironically, I see mostly senior citizens at the Red Box in my well, yeah, grocery store. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, they haven't, they haven't switched to streaming, or it's a little complicated, or they've got their DVD player. They know how to use it. Oh, there's the new movie. It's a dollar. It's very economical. So, you know, committing to 10 or $15 a month may not seem like a lot to some people. That adds up pretty quick when you're on unlimited income. And it's a set number. So that's a, you know, that's exactly right. Very low, low, low income people and seniors looking to Redbox for that little, little bit of fun on a, on a, on a budget. 
So you have a budget every year. Will your budget include going to Sundance in 2022? They're going to go hybrid, meaning you, I don't know if you'd be able to see every movie, but you will be able to see a number of the movies online if you're a journalist and register. So what are you going to do? Are you going to go in person? Will you see if you can go online? Which would you prefer? Oh, I I don't know. Maybe I'd go in person. I, I might go in person. It's such that festival trying to find a place to stay and going there. It's so expensive. And, it, you know, I, I like the festival. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I, I have to see how it plays out. Do they have raisins at the festival? Because raisins are delicious. I'm oh just my god! Some more Enough right now. with the, the raisins are the raisins. <laughs> unbelievable. I'll We're talking about ra- it, uh, I'll only this mention week it four on more times. Raisin Sandbox. <laughs> <laughs> um, we talk a lot about CEO pay as well and deadline waiting as well. Jill Goldsmith of Deadline wrote a story about CEO pay during the great collapse of 2020. She echoed Dickens in her opening line: "It was the worst of times for the world. It was still a pretty good time for CEO pay." She talked about how the top 10 media company CEOs got a combined $350 million last year, an average of $35 million in exec, thanks to hefty stock and option grants during the worst economic disruption since the Great Depression. Basically, all the board said, you know, all those, all those markers and things we look at to decide how much money you get? Well, it's not fair to use those during some crazy time like this. We're going to throw them all out and come up with new metrics. And when we look at our new metrics, we say, hey, you did great. (laughs) Well, in some cases it was, hey, um, here's the thing. You have $0 in revenue coming in. If somehow you can raise enough money to keep the company afloat, we'll give you 5% of the money you raise. And that's basically what was happening. No, no, it's not. That makes it sound like they did some heroic thing that uh, uh, remarkably kept the company from going out of business. That's not true in most cases. They weren't threatened with going out of business. They kept the ship afloat. They were in charge, but the business collapsed. Earnings collapsed. Their employees were furloughed or fired, and yet they still continue to rake in big bucks. That's what we're talking about here. Not, oh my God, they saved the company, but oh my God, everybody else suffered, but not you because you're the CEO. Basically, as I'm only talking about like one or two people there. (laughs) I'm only referring to two people. Well, we're talking about the industry as a whole. She said, everyone got an A for effort, (laughs) gold star, and $30 million for you. But don't feel bad, Hollywood, because there's a story in the New York Times about how. Major corporations all over the country did the same thing. No matter where they were, the board said, oh, we can't possibly judge you in these horrible times on that. So we'll look at other things and decide you were great and continue to shovel money at them. Oh, well, it's very distressing, very depressing. But there is good news. The pandemic is receding. You don't necessarily have to wear your mask outdoors and indoors in many different environments. Not everywhere. You go to the hospital, you go to, a, you go to an airport. And you know what? If you're on public transport, you should still wear a mask. Always. Good idea. Um, But things are changing. The Hollywood Bowl, their summer season is back starting in July. They will be capped at two-thirds capacity at the start. But Sperling, have you been to the Hollywood Bowl in the last five or ten years? Would you go? I have been to the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, I was at the Hollywood Bowl, you know, the year before, uh, well, 2019. Uh, and I would go if I if there was something playing that I would want. It's very expensive, uh, the Hollywood mm. Bowl, and it's kind of uh, it's it's hard to explain, but it, it it's in a it's in a pa- it's in Coinga Pass here in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, and getting in and out of there is an ordeal. 
Like you have to actually plan like, okay, so we've got to be near the venue an hour early so that we can spend an hour hiking in and then an (laughs) hour hiking out and we have to park. Well, that's like $45, you know, like the parking alone costs more than the ticket sometimes. Mm. Well, there's two things I'd love. Well, if the tickets are less than $45, I wouldn't call that expensive. No, well, if if you're paying that price, you are so far away from the stage, you may as well be at home. All right. Well, they are doing the Princess Bride with a live score, so the symphony will play the score to the Princess Bride, the score being written by Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits. Well, I, I as would, you wish. <laughs> I'd love to see that. And Hall Notes are playing there in October. I've wanted to see Hall Notes for a long time, and I have a friend, Sal Nunziato. He's been on the show before. He's at Burning Wood, uh, a great uh, music blog site and he loves hollow notes but they've been sort of sort of going through the motions in the last few years i need for them to get something lit under their fire an anniversary or something where they are really focused and want to put on a great show again because they're still in good voice they can still do it but at the time is not right i don't want to just see them you know oh here we are doing the hits and going home i want them to be really committed to making themselves put on a great show so well so what you're saying is if they're just going out there trying to you know hey you know what if we just show up they'll pay us you won't go for that you won't go for that (laughs) well well done (laughs) hey hey speaking of music david byrne you didn't respond to my email because you don't look at emails how many thousands of emails do you have blocked up again you're almost down to zero on some of your accounts but anyway david byrne american utopia returning to broadway in like the fall september october i am your plus one if your wife can't go i will go to new york and be your plus one okay well uh yeah i don't know what's going on with that to be you're not selling them you're not selling them no i don't don't know what's going on i'll be honest i honestly do not know what i have to Go and look at my email and find out if they contacted me to tell me about, yeah, I don't know. Okay, well, I, I will check that out. But first, we have to talk about Les Moonves, talking about heads of corporations. He was kicked out of CBS in disgrace, and there's big lawsuits back and forth. About, it seems like $120 million to $140 million was being argued over. He deserved some severance pay of $120 million, and they said, not so much. And they went to court and there was an investigation and their arbitration or whatever the heck it was, legally speaking, they have now come to result. CBS keeps the $120 million. There was another $20 million that was somehow in play. And Les Moonves is going to be allowed to donate it to charity in his name. So he won't get any money from this final area of settlement. I thought, wow, lost out on $140 million. That seems kind of shocking. But then you look, his last two years of CEO pay, he made $70 million a year the last two years he was at CBS. So he got $140 million just a few years ago, so he'll be okay. You see, you're not crying for him, right? Don't cry for me, Les Moonves. Yes. But Gal Gadot, I mean, good Lord, she finally on Israeli television spoke up about why she was not a big fan of director Joss Whedon. When Ray Fisher started speaking up and say what a jerk he was, she and Jason Momoa were both like, we stand with him. You know, Ray Fisher, not Joss Whedon. You thought, oh my God, <laughs> that's kind of shocking. And it turns out he threatened her during, <laughs> threatened Gal, she Wonder Woman. Like, that's a big star of big, valuable property. And he thought he could just push her around and threatened her career. And she immediately took her to the higher ups and stood up to him and said, no. And it was dealt with. But no wonder she's not a fan. But that's amazing that you could have that much. Uh, insanity to think you can push around big stars like that. Not, not only that, but like let's let's put it this way: Joss Whedon was stepping in, okay, for Zack right. Snyder, right? Yeah. Okay, so so we've already proven that the director can be replaced. 
But you know what's really hard to do is replace somebody that's in front of the camera. Just ask the people trying to make Black Panther 2, okay? So <laughs> yeah. why would you – what are you threatening them with? They're, it's not like they're going to be like, you know what, Joss, you're right. We're going to replace – we're going to replace Gal. We're just going to have to replace her. No, they'll yeah. replace you before they replace her. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's shocking. Um, I just don't know what to say about it, but you hear these stories and you, you know, people got away with this for a long time, you know, and there are people who don't want to stand up to them or don't want to be seen as, you know, Oh, she's a woman. She's complaining. Oh, she's so difficult to deal with. That was what any woman who spoke up for herself was told. Oh, you can't get along. Oh, for God's sakes, it's just silly boy talk, you know, just roll your eyes and deal with it. You know, that was the attitude for decades, even by some women like Catherine Deneuve, the great French actress who put up with this crap for decades and felt like, well, I have a thick skin. You should be able to deal with it, too. It's like, it's great you dealt with it, but you shouldn't have had to. You know what I don't like dealing with? Crappy sound. You don't like crappy sound? I love crappy sound, especially when it's on our podcast. <laughs> our podcast sounds pretty good. And I saw it was on Amazon Music. That's cool. I didn't realize it would be populating there, but it is there. And I've been listening to Amazon Music because, for some reason, they offered me free access to high-def Amazon Music for like a, three months for free. I said, okay, because I wondered what it sounded like and how it compared to regular def, which is what I have via Spotify. Even if you download at a higher bit rate, it's still not massively high-def. You know what? You can tell the difference. You can really? absolutely okay. tell the difference. And that's that's playing through my crappy car speakers. Some of it is just they've cranked up the volume a little bit, but there I believe there is more detail. It is clearly a, a bigger bit rate. It's bigger sampling. So you're getting a better, clear sound quality. It's more like playing a really well-mastered CD than what most downloads are like on your on your cell phone, which is just, you know a little compressed and more like a cassette maybe from the old days. So I was kind of getting to the end. It was May 23rd. I have a note to myself to cancel Amazon music because my three month, you know, time will be up and I don't want to start paying $15 a month for it. There's, and suddenly in the news, Amazon music and Apple music are going to offer high def for the same regular price. Amazon dropped it. said, you want high def? Anybody with Amazon Music gets it at $10. We're not going to charge you an extra five bucks a month just to get high def quality when you want it. Apple is doing the same thing. They're offering high def at $10 a month, though, of course, with bundling and all that stuff, it could be less. But what they're not offering is a higher price. You won't have to pay a premium price to access high definition. I'm certain Spotify will follow suit. And people may remember we were talking about this years ago. We're saying, you know what? Higher quality audio should be part of your basic business plan. Charging people extra for good sound quality when you're offering only sound, just sound. That's all you have to offer is sounds that really should not be done. You want to offer some extra premium services? Great. Sound quality should not be one of them. That should be part of the basic package. I'm thrilled that they're doing this. So, okay. So here's a question for you because... I do wonder, uh, you know, I, I'm a, a Spotify subscriber. I believe you are a Spotify subscriber. I am, $10 a month. Right. And so here's the deal. Are you locked into Spotify or will you be switching yeah. to Amazon? Or I'm, not, I'm, I'm not locked in. It's $10 a month. You can cancel at any time. I didn't have any sort of like one-year contract or anything, and I've had it for longer than that. Well, I, uh, I would say lock-in is more a matter of how many playlists do you have, how many friends are following you, how many things are you listening to that are only on Spotify that you really like. And yeah. that's really my, where I was headed with this, this line of questioning is, 
What would make you choose Apple versus Amazon versus Spotify? Well, I've, I've been on Amazon Music. I haven't tried Apple Music. Most of the music offerings are the same, so that's not really an issue. There is the rare example of something available on one and not the other. It's not new releases. It's some catalog item. That's kind of a wash. So the music you can access is the same. Spotify is 10,000 times better than Amazon in terms of playlists, not just the ones you create, but the ones you can find. If there's a, a soundtrack for a movie that's not out yet or is never going to be out, you can look for a playlist and someone has probably already created a playlist of all the songs in that movie on a playlist. There it is. Much better access to playlists on Spotify. Uh, the ease of adding and removing music. It's easy to add music, but removing it on Amazon Music is super hard. It's ridiculous. You can only remove it by track or by artist. I've had sometimes two albums by an artist, and at least I couldn't figure it out how to remove just one album and not the other if I had, say, two albums by The Who on my, on my phone. That was kind of a pain in the neck, and all I do is download stuff. I don't stream it. I always download the music before I play it because I'm driving in the car or doing whatever. That's where I listen to music. So for that reason, I much prefer Spotify. I don't care so much about my playlist, though I have quite a few. But I would much rather stay with Spotify, and I'm, I'm going to just cancel Amazon Music and hope that in the next month or two, they're going to step it up and offer high def for the same price that I'm already paying. If they don't, I will switch. Yeah, that's so Spotify right now, what, they charge extra for high def? They, they don't offer high def in that sense. They offer a higher bit rate that you can choose with your regular service. It's not the same level as high def. So they do not offer a super premium high def offering akin to what Amazon and Apple are offering. Well, I can tell you they better do something because if Apple and Amazon are offering high, eventually people will move over. But that's really what, what I'm trying to figure out now is, you know, obviously there are podcasts on, well, I guess both app, well, they all have podcasts, but some have exclusive podcasts. That's and, right. That's why they have them. They want to make you stay with them in case somebody else offers some shiny new toy. They say, oh, you don't want to miss Joe Rogan, that jerk. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then there's, you know, all of the ease of use. You just kind of defined it. And I have to yeah. say for a while, uh, they, Amazon had this storage locker. You could like upload your, your music into, mm -hmm. uh, into the cloud. Uh, I know, and you know, Apple has, uh, you know, match they have the same thing. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, instead of uploading it, they just kind of say, Oh, you have that track Alanis Morissette jag a little, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just, uh, now you have it on a a Apple too. Okay. Don't worry about it. You don't have to upload it. Whereas Amazon, you were uploading your music. It was so cumbersome to use that mm -hmm. I eventually just gave up. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say the Spotify stuff is a very good ease of use for the consumer. I'm happier with them, but I will switch in a few months if they don't start offering high def for the same price because the sound quality is what matters to me the most. The playlist and all that other stuff, I'll just suck it up. And, you know, speaking of sucking it up, uh, we got a lot of happenings in television because it's the fall TV season where people make announcements, they make deals. Everyone is emphasizing that this year's not the same. They're making deals all year round. They're programming all year round. The pandemic has made that even more essential. They didn't have a choice, really, because not everybody could shoot stuff right now. So everybody says it's nothing like it used to be ever before. But there is some news. The CW, the little network that could, they're airing on Saturday nights starting in the fall. For the first time ever, they will be airing seven nights a week. You know who doesn't do that? ABC, CBS, and NBC. I was going to say everybody else. Right, yeah. which is ridiculous. They have reruns on Saturday nights or sometimes college sports and other things. But why they abandoned that real estate, I don't know. It's still valuable. There's lots of people sitting at home who just want to turn on the TV.
But ABC Disney is there. They are programming. They are doing stuff. Made a lot of big deals, especially in sports. They extended their Major League Baseball deal. That includes the Game of the Week, Little League Classic, Sunday Night Baseball. They also signed a deal with Spain's La Liga Football League. They will be owning 380 matches per season, including Real Madrid and Barcelona, with both English and Spanish language rights. No Telemundo for the Spanish. No, no, no. ABC and Disney, they are going to own it all. All games will probably be airing simultaneously on ESPN+. They also said, hey, we've got Jungle Cruise coming to uh, premium video on demand. Isn't that great? And by the way, what did you want to say, Sperling? Uh, what did I want to say about what? <laughs> their, their subscriber base. Oopsie. Didn't hit their numbers. They thought yeah, they were going to oh, hit Yeah, 100. no, I said that already. I, I said, know, I, said I, know. I was cueing you to say yeah. it again. Instead of hitting oh, 109 okay. million, they grew, but at a much slower pace to 103 million. Also, the ARPU, that is the average rate per user, meaning how much money do they make per person subscribed to them? They got a average revenue per user. Revenue. Revenue, revenue thank you. 103 million people subscribe. They make on average $4 a person. And that slipped. That fell down. They explained it because they're expanding in Disney Hotstar over in Asia and India. So that's why they say that has fallen. That's okay. Here's the thing about all that news right there. Everyone mm -hmm. predicted that. When they said, oh, we're going to be expanding in in India, everybody well, said, "Okay, we well, expect your expect your ARPU to fall," and uh, and you know when they said, "Oh, here's where we plan to be in in uh, Q1 or Q2 of of 2021," you know everybody said, "Hey, you know things are going to slow down for you a little bit, so you might want to warn people about that." Like Netflix did, like HBO Max did, like Peacock. Everybody did that except Disney. So now you know, sure enough, right, same we, thing we, is happening to them. Right, but they're slowed down in subscribers. We expected that to happen, but again. It's a good point. $4 per user versus $14 per user for Netflix, which means if you want to equal Netflix's revenue, you're going to have to have, <laughs> you know, $4 into $14.25. That's like 12 and a half. So that's like 350% more subscribers than Netflix has, not than you have now. So Netflix has 208 million. You gotta have like seven hundred million subscribers just to Although equal the revenue they're getting right now. That's, that's true. misleading. It's misleading because fourteen dollars and twenty five cents was the ARPU, ARPU only for for Netflix's U.S. and Canada um, customers. If you were to do worldwide, I'm sure that ARPU would fall for the very reason that it falls for Disney. Is that uh, you know they're, they're not selling not Netflix in other countries at 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 a higher rate. I, I believe the Disney ARPU was also for North America only. Oh, no, it couldn't be because they talked about Disney Hotstar. Yeah, exactly. So that's why. Um, so I have a little cheat sheet at the bottom of my uh, of our document every week where I keep a running update of any time we hear some new numbers on subscribers for video or music streaming and ARPU. I have not found one yet for Netflix that gives us a worldwide ARPU. If you have it, let us know. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. Please call. Somebody call us, 888. <laughs> That's 888-567-SAND. Again, 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle, and we're on Facebook facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox is where you can like our page that's right and we're linking to a charts from nielsen that report on the top streaming properties every week they only have access in general to amazon disney plus hulu 
and Netflix. Hey, HBO Max, Discovery, uh, uh, Paramount Plus. You think you might want to be on the chart? If people are listing the top shows of the week, you want to be in the mix there. It's to your benefit to share that information because it's important to be in the conversation when people talk about the most popular shows because the most popular show this week overall is The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That's on Disney+. Plus. It's an original series. 855 million minutes were viewed last week. I think they're only on the fourth or fifth episode. Every week when they add an episode, their streaming numbers continue to grow. This is a very popular show. We're just in mid-April in terms of where we're measuring viewership. So every time they add a sh- an episode, more and more people keep joining in. This show is doing great, and it keeps building. So that's great to see. In our combined chart, we have one, two, Four of the top 10 are originals. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney+. Plus, The movie Thunder Force on Netflix. Oi. Uh, them, the Amazon horror anthology series. And The Circle, also on Netflix. Uh, so those are our top 10. You can look at the entire chart there. But yeah, you know, it's inf- interesting information. It's only mostly from those top four streamers. And everybody else should get in the mix there. It's You're, you're just hurting yourself. Well, you know, uh, I, I actually had highlighted a a story to talk about because it was Nielsen saying that yes, okay, the networks were right. We were a little off on. We undercounted yeah. some. And, and then, yeah, and then when I read the story, I was like, oh, you know what? Actually, they said that the 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 uptick for most of these networks was like minimal. Like you could barely tell. It's like, yeah, we missed a few thousand, not like millions of of like, get off our back. Yeah, so it wasn't a bit as big a deal as I thought. Ah, say it. Okay, yes, indeed. It is time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, the trailblazing band, The Go-Go's. They have done it again. They've gone all the way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as an all-female rock band. Joining them are Tina Turner as a solo act, not with Ike Turner, Jay-Z, and and the actual rock band, the Foo Fighters. Carol King is a performer and producer and artist Todd Rundgren. So this is what this means. It means three of the six main nominees are women, or I guess if you count like all the Go-Go's, then like seven out of 10. I don't know how that works. <laughs> Except there are more Foo Fighters, so it's seven out of 15. I messed that up or something yes, like that. Yes, that's, that's true. You know, yeah, the, so the, cool, the, right? the drummer for the Foo Fighters lives around the corner from, I didn't know this, but he was at some like, some charity event before the pandemic and he, everybody kept saying, oh, look, it's, it's the drummer from Foo Fighters. I was like, how does anybody recognize the drummer from Foo Fighters? But I guess They're I was like, he's really band. good at the drums. He's boy, he's really, really good up there. <laughs> so this is a big deal. It's a, some well overdue introduction of women who have deserved to be in the hall. Carol King was in previously as a songwriter. So she and Tina Turner joined Stevie Nicks as the only three women to be inducted twice. Lots of men have been inducted twice, like, you know, Paul McCartney and the Beatles. Craftwork are honored with an early influence award. So there are some groups that did not get in from the general vote. And just like in the baseball hall of fame where the, where the executive committee steps in and goes, yeah, that guy should be in. They step in to correct some oversights or some people who deserve to be there in some way and haven't yet. So Kraftwerk will be in there, along with Gil Scott Heron and Charlie Patton, a great blues man. And LL Cool J gets a Musical Excellence Award, along with the fifth Beatle, Billy Preston, who is awesome, and metal guitarist Randy Rhodes of Quiet Riot and Ozzy Osbourne fame. 
So that's very cool to see. I think the committee did a good job. Uh, Todd Rundgren, very excited to be see him in there. Great artist, great producer and engineer. And guess what? He was an engineer on Bat Out of Hell, the album by Milo for Jim Steinman. <gasps> okay, I won't, oh I won't go on. Never mind, never mind. Keep going, keep going. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, Ellen DeGeneres isn't going to keep going. She is ending her daytime talk show in 2022 after 19 seasons on the air. She took over the mantle of Nice from Rosie O'Donnell and me, of course, and she <laughs> ran with it. She ran with that 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 mantle, uh, breaking ground as an openly gay woman, becoming America's friend next door. She lived next door to everybody, and she was friends with everybody. You know, Rosie was gay, too, but not, I guess, open about it when her show began. Uh, new contenders like Kelly Clarkson. Uh, who is in my home all the time telling me what furniture to buy from Wayfair. Uh, she will. Uh, sh- she hopes to fill the gap that is being left by, by Ellen, but she's going to be hard-pressed to top that success, which includes spinoffs like the ongoing primetime series Ellen's Game of Games. Of course, the show ends with a cloud over it after Ellen was criticized for being aloof from workers and having a toxic atmosphere via multiple producers, who she then fired, by the way, after that scandal broke. So big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a very big deal. Uh, it's 19 years. That's an eternity in daytime television. It's amazing to see. Uh, it's a shame. And at first she said, ah, I know if I was leaving because of all that stuff, I would have left before. I wouldn't do another season. She seemed like she was going to be above it and, and slip away and try to have a good. Then in her in- exit interview, she was very defensive and said she was targeted and was misogynistic and it was coordinated. It's like, no, it really wasn't. So it's a very shame, big shame to see her ratings have been falling, but she was still, you know, a profitable show and a real powerhouse. And you can't overstate how big a deal it was for her for 19 years to be an openly gay woman. Being in a daytime talk show, that visibility, that friendly atmosphere, that really changes a lot of minds, just like the Cosby show did. Uh, you know, that that's a huge impact that you can never take away, no matter what happens in Bill Cosby's private life or some awful producers that she had that she should have been paying more attention to. So it's a shame she's not learning from this and she's still feeling defensive and like she was targeted. I felt like everybody was like, oh, (laughs) nobody liked to hear that Ellen DeGeneres had a bad work atmosphere. And her response keeps saying, well, my celebs who came on said what a happy place it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) You you know, uh, it also kind of speaks volumes about how streaming is affecting daytime syndication. How so? uh, well, uh, fewer people are watching daytime shows. Instead, oh, well, they're watching her, her show. Was t- took a took a hit immediately from the from the revelations and when the new season began. Her show was down substantially. It's not across the board down as such. Right, uh, there is probably a downward trend a little bit, but this was really a a, a downward trend that was significant on her show alone. So that was really about the bad press that she got. People suddenly just were not as interested in watching the show, but she's a very talented person. Hopefully she'll get on to do more stuff and, you know, learn from it rather than just uh, claim everybody had it in for because nobody had it in for Ellen. That's not, true. But not, she did not learn eventually, what- not eventually, not eventually. Of course, at first they did. She faced a lot of, you know, ugly negative stuff over her career. So good for her. You know, uh, here's the thing. Uh, she learned one thing over the past year or two, and mm-hmm. that it's a hard knock life. Because it is a hard knock life, Michael. But I have some good news for you. The musical Annie will be NBC's <gasps> big live event this December. Oh, the sun will come out tomorrow. No? Oh, that's good because, you know, right now it's a little cloudy. And I was wondering, you know, <laughs> is it going to rain? Oh, you meant, okay, yeah. 
No, Any. never mind. Uh, sports and live events are catnip for everyone, and NBC doesn't have a lot of sports. Please, please don't cancel don't the Olympics. Can- please don't cancel the Olympics. That's NBC is on their just had their earnings call, and they're like, the Olympics is happening, happening, even though Japan is doing a terrible job dealing with the pandemic, and it's looking like a disaster. But we'll see. Yeah. They should have no fans, you know, frankly. Yeah. You just have to say, all right, we can hold the sporting events, but not have the people. That's the only safe way to do it at this point, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, I, well, anyway, the story of a little orphan girl, her dog Sandy, <laughs> and a, pre- a president trying to lift the country out of an economic depression. Well, it's a perfect fit because, well, we basically have the same thing going on now, just without <laughs> the orphan. and the, Yeah. No, we've got orphans. I got orphans. I can find you an orphan. You get an orphan and you get, okay, big deal or big whoop. Well, it's a big whoop, I suppose, in the scheme of things. I cannot believe that they didn't announce at the same time that they were going to have a reality show where they audition and find their Annie. Like, tell me you should not have an eight-week series where you try to find the little girl who's going to play Annie. So for eight weeks, you go casting things all over the country. You have judges. You find little girls. You get caught up in their story. And all you're doing is building up to the excitement of the actual Annie. You're always looking for a new Annie. That should be a reality show for eight weeks. Then, then of course, they have to rehearse and get ready for the show, so there'll be a break. But it'll be free promo for the movie special. It's free, cheap reality programming, and they're going to have to do it anyway. Come on, NBC. Get on the ball. Even if it's not on NBC, it should be on their streaming service. Crazy. Yeah, that is. Maybe they didn't want to be, like, bound by. No, no. You, you know, you can always, yeah, you go look for your Annie. If you don't find the right Annie. Then you did something wrong. That's what you do every time you cast Annie. You have a massive casting call with a gazillion little girls belting out tomorrow. It's like a nightmare, but, you know, it's good programming and it's good value for promoting the show. They did it in the UK, Andrew Lloyd Webber. They would have a new West End show and they had a, you know, they had a reality show to find their stars for Greece in the West oh, End. Remember okay. that? Yeah. yeah or yeah, the US, yeah. they did that and they do it in the UK with like Cinderella or something. They, they do it all the time. It just seems a bizarre, obvious thing to do. Oh, well. You know what the executives uh, over at NBC are saying? I'm sorry, what? We were, uh, couldn't hear you. We were uh, looking at our streaming numbers. What were you saying? Exactly. <laughs> but it might be uh, a streaming offering. Yeah, no, Even I agree. Even if it's not on NBC, it should be at least on a streamer. Well, hey, you know how you might search for a mattress and, and you know, you're looking for like the different prices online. That, yeah, yeah. You know, only you're going to find yourself later. Like mattress ads are everywhere. They're popping up on every site you go to for months on end. Years, years to come. Yes. Yeah. Well, soon you might find those same ads popping up during 60 minutes in NCIS. The CBS network announced plans to make targeted ads available to advertisers beginning this fall. Known as addressable ads, this technique lets advertisers send out car ads to, you know, active car buyers and movie ads for horror flicks to younger folk and so on. You can bet your bippy the other networks will follow suit, hoping this stems the flow of ad dollars to digital and cable. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? I think it's a big whoop. It's just something they can do technologically. They always would have been happy to do it. And now they're going to slice and dice those ads up even more. And it's not just for ad buyers, of course. If you if they know you're a regular fan of NCIS and you're watching some other CBS show, why show you an ad for NCIS? Unless it's like the new season or the finale, just show them an ad for some other CBS show or maybe for Paramount Plus instead. So there's a million possibilities this opens. The only reason it didn't happen before was technology. They figured it out, a way to make a little bit more money. Yeah, now they can actually target your 
your set top box and they can, you know, it's called programmatic advertising. This isn't full programmatic, but it's very, very close, mm-hmm. which sounds really kind of wonky. I know. Yeah. So that means it must be time for Inside Baseball. Aha. Yeah. Well, Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And let me tell you something, Michael, if you, if our listeners have had trouble hearing us today, mm-hmm. it's because of all of the hoopla behind us regarding this next story. This oh, I thought it was merger. because of the poor 4G quality sound that we have, whereas AT&T needs to step it up and launch that 5G network, which costs a lot of money. By the way, by the way, Thank you for saying launch and network and 4G and all that stuff, because there I am watching a movie uh, uh, called, uh, God, what was that movie? It was a Mads Mikkelsen movie that I saw this week that was- uh, The drinking one? No, no, no. It was- uh, The the violent one, the the revenge one. Woo, yes, that was unbelievably violent. Uh, it was called Riders of Justice? Riders of Justice. I just wanted to say Soldiers of Justice, and I knew that was wrong, and I couldn't couldn't remember. The, anyway, it was actually a fun movie. Uh, but uh, that said, I'm in the middle of this movie, at home, in, in the screening room. Uh, I say that <laughs> as if it's a, yeah, it's a big, giant screening room. And my daughter, in the other room, starts... It, screaming not you know out of just oh my gosh oh you got us come here come here quick come here quick she we race outside i follow her i pause the movie we race outside and up in the sky is a string of satellites all in a row traveling at a, a like wickedly fast pace across the sky all synchronous it was it was uh, the Elon Musk. Hello, you know, Ma- hello, Mr. Musk. Exactly. Yeah, and I guess he had launched it a day before, and and the satellites were going into geosynchronous orbit, and they were in perfect alignment. It was, it was remarkable to see that. Actually, I just the other day got a text alert from NASA telling me when the International Space Station will be traveling over my area and likely visible. I, my friends did it. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And most of the alerts said 5.20 a.m., to which I say, well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not waking up. Not waking up. 4.50 a.m. Well done. But <laughs> just a few nights ago, it was 9.10 p.m., perfect timing. I went out, and there it was. You know, it looks south, southeast, and it's traveling this way at 56 degrees. You just sort of, ah, you, once you see that dot moving across the sky faster than pretty much anything except a plane, you know that's the space station. And there it was for three minutes, visible in the sky. You know, human beings up above us in the sky traveling is kind of cool. Well, you know, uh, what some of those satellites are going to be bouncing down to us is uh, programming from Warner Media and now Discovery, because those two companies have, and well, AT&T, I should say, is combining its media properties, and they will own 71% of the new company with Discovery. So AT&T kind of spinning off Warner Media, then combining Warner, Warner Media with Discovery. Didn't they just buy Warner Media? Well, let's not get into that. That's, that's, that's like technical, okay? Don't, that's like It's a happy day. Why say sad things? That's right. Yeah. They're combining the two companies into a separate media company. AT&T will stay separate, of course. It's going to happen probably mid-2022. It'll take a year for everyone to sign off on it, including the governments. Which they should not, by the way, but that's another story entirely. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Uh, AT&T, I have to say, they sure can't keep a secret. 
Now, I yeah. had no idea this was happening. Not, not a whisper. Yesterday, we saw, is this a possibility? And today, it's a done deal, basically. Well, it yeah. came together over several months, uh, several months of talks between uh, the discover the head of Discovery, okay, whose name is David Zaslov, and I guess the head of AT&T. Uh, and they, I guess he's friends with uh, Jeff Zucker, the CNN boss, and uh, came together over several months in Mr. Zaslov's Greenwich Village brownstone. So they just kind of like were shooting the breeze and said, you know, we, we should do. But everybody <laughs> said, you know, hey, Warner Media is going to have to do something. They should, they should acquire Comcast or NBC Universal. They should acquire that and team up or do something because then it could be HBO Max Peacock, you know, whatever it's going to be called. Mm-hmm. Well, while everybody was looking at that merger, Lo and behold, another merger was taking place. It was Warner Media and Discovery. Should we be excited by this? Because boy, AT and T does not know what they're doing, right? No, Are they in fact, you know what they said? This what? is really good news. You know what we're going to do? We're going to take Warner Media and we're going to give it to people who uh, they work in television and the <laughs> entertainment business. That's right. So they a few years ago they paid sixty-seven billion dollars for Direct TV just when streaming was coming on board and satellite TV was collapsing. And so then they, they spun it off a few years later at a $50 billion loss. Now it seems like they bought Warner Media for $88 billion. This new company, the stakes looks like, I think if I read it properly, will be valued at about $40 billion. That seems to me like they're taking another $40 billion loss. It's $90 billion loss in like the last five years or something. But oh, oh boy. I, I'd have to double check that math. I, I, I think that the the... the I, I, could I'm, be more I'm than sure. That. I, oh, you think the loss is bigger than that? Oh, okay. No, no, well, no, no. I think I think the combined entity no, will be worth. The more. combined entity is more, but their stake is forty billion dollars. So their seventy percent stake is forty billion, uh, along with whatever debt, equity, and all this other stuff. Because there's debt. Well, it's fifty-five billion dollars in debt. That's that's how much debt they're they're going to be. Well, there's now, debt everywhere. There's everybody's got debt. AT and T has debt, and they have to launch their five G network. They have to service the debt, and they and if they want HBO Max to work, they got to spend a lot of money on programming. And that's why they're like, this isn't working. We need to make this a separate company. Maybe it will be more valuable separately. And there's good reason for that. HBO Max and Discovery Plus make an almost perfect fit. The combined entities will look to spend about $20 billion on content in the next year. That's what it looks like. That would be more than Netflix's recent programming budget. Obviously, uh, HBO Max has great distribution in North America. Discovery Plus has great distribution in the rest of the world, or at least good distribution. HBO Max has cable channels like TNT, TCM, TBS. They're really strong in fiction programming. Discovery, of course, is all about reality tossing CNN and the sports programming, and it smiles all around. They'll have 200,000 hours of programming for whatever combined or bundled streaming services that they end up offering. Wow. DC Comics, CNN, Cartoon Network, HGTV, Food Network, which I was just watching, The Animal Planet, Magnolia, Eurosport, Warner Brothers, HBO, and on and on and on. Oh, my God. I could tell you we're watching uh, the Food Network with those raisins and all. <laughs> That's uh, right. now, now, the AT and T right now has 169 billion dollars in debt, and, right? And so, that, of course, all of their shareholders were like, "Um, uh, hey, you know, it shouldn't be half of what you're worth." And they have to spend a lot on launching 5G properly. Correct. And now, here's the thing: uh, nobody knows who's going to uh, kind of whether Jason well, Kalar. Bad no, no, day no, for Jason no. Kalar. No, he's, he's done. done. He's done. It's Dave, David Zaslav is in charge. We know that. Well, he's yes, he's in charge of the whole company, but will he remain the CEO of the Warner Media division? 
nobody knows. Well, Kalar is out. Nobody even mentioned him. They're like, yeah, they're like, oh, he'll have a title. He has a title right now. And we're looking at everything. No, David Zaslov is in charge. Kilar is out. He's not going to hang around to be his second in command. And they don't want him there because he's part of the problem. Pissed the irony is the Wall Street Journal just did a huge expose on uh, Jason Kilar. And I was going to invite, uh, I think it was Joe Flint who did the, the, the profile. Expose. I was going to invite him on. Expose. Yeah. When meaning what? 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 what no, did just they expose? like a profile of him. But well, no, maybe expose. Not an expose. Means bad. A profile. Profile. Whatever. Oh, well, that's big difference. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fine. Oh, okay. So they you say big- tomato, I say tomato. You say I say expose. You say okay. So it was an interview. Oh, that was <laughs> so- that was a bad bad timing. That's for sure. So yes, uh, will they combine or will they perhaps bundle it like Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN? Because Discovery has Eurosport Player internationally, which is their uh, sports division. Uh, when asked, Zaslov said they will quote do it differently. End quote. What does that well, one mean? Thing, one <laughs> thing is true. Here's here's one thing that you can guarantee. Or not guarantee, but this is what you should really be taking away from this. Streaming is global. That is what we're learning, is that th- this is a global play. Because you, you don't want rights for one or two. Co- you want to have rights yeah. for everywhere, and you got to have original programming, and you want to sell it all over the world because that's where you make money. Right, correct. And since you are now the store, it used to be, hey, I cr- I. I produced Magnum PI for my American audience, and it was a huge hit. Isn't that great? You know what? I kept it for my Canadian audience because, you know, they speak English and everything. But here's the thing. I don't have any play in the United Kingdom, so I'll sell it to, I don't know, BBC or somebody over there. But you know what? Still a huge business right now. I, I don't know what to do with it in France, so I'll sell it to a network over there. And and so you were basically selling it to all of these you know, these networks around, but now guess what? You are the network. You can reach still, all of these people. A, that's still a big business because you're as HBO max discovery or whatever you call it. You're not going to come up with every idea for every show. There will always be independent people or big studios that produce programming that you're going to want. And they may not sell it to you for the entire world. There's still a lot of money to be made in creating great shows and selling them to networks and streamers piece by piece all over the world. That will still happen. Right, but what Warner Media and Discovery and Peacock and Netflix are, have learned is that creating House of Cards, which Netflix did, mm-hmm. and then they sold the rights mm-hmm. to it in France. They couldn't. They can't now. They don't have it in France. So in Netflix well, it, it and France, will, they can't, it will revert to them eventually. That's only for a certain number yeah. of years. Yeah. So like everybody, we have a lot of licensing deals now. Warner Media has licensed a lot of their stuff to Sky Satellite. Comcast owns Sky Satellite in Europe and Asia, and Warner Media licensed a lot of their programming to Sky Satellite. Those will eventually, first of all, eventually they may want those rights back. Secondly, they weren't launching HBO Max to compete with Sky because they were already selling their shows there. Now they have an incentive to compete and go head to head with them and eventually grab back those shows. So the big Do you think get this bigger. is a good idea for them to merge? Well, I think it's a good idea they get away from AT&T as much as possible. I think it's a. I think they do make sense as a fit in terms of compatibility. They every strength of the one seems to be the weakness of the other. Other people may know more than me, but the one element here that a lot of people aren't talking about yet that you can shed some light on is the Warner Brothers Film Studio. What's been happening to them for the last few years, and what does this mean for their fortunes? 
Well, for like two years, they were in this weird holding pattern because AT&T announced that they were going to buy Warner Brothers. So that meant that everybody at Warner Brothers Pictures, Warner Brothers Studios, couldn't really do anything. Nobody was making a decision. Then they lost Kevin Suzihara. So there was nobody that was in charge. And nobody, people didn't even know who to talk to over there. And of course, nobody wanted to make a decision because new bosses were coming to town and they wanted to all look good for the new boss with, hey, I didn't make any mistakes over the past two years. Well, guess what? All of those people were pretty much shown the door over the last well like 18 to 24 yeah. months let's get rid of all that you know intelligence and you know career savvy and connections that they have just throw them away because what does it matter and so now they have a whole new crop of of uh of, of, I guess, executive talent in place, but now they're not going to be able to do anything until like mid 2022. And then even beyond that until, you know, all the shakeout it's, it's basically you have put Warner brothers in a deep freeze for two years before. And now you're going to do the same thing at least again. for another year. Yeah. Another yeah. year or two. So, so just, just to give you some sense. So this week on the CJ cinema summit, little plug there. We have Andrew Cripps, who is the head of international distribution at Warner Brothers. He's based in, I believe, London. And he was not able to join us because he was a part of AT&T and he had to get everything cleared through AT&T. Now, we're friendly. We're not going to ask him any like really, you know, like, hey, you know, what are you doing? We need percentages. And no, we're not doing that because we're not allowed to because that would, you know, break antitrust rules. So it took Four months minimum to get clearance through AT&T to have him come on the show. Meanwhile, Jason Kalar is off doing a podcast with Recode. <laughs> so it's, it's the AT&T shackles, as you say, were a kind of onerous. It'll be interesting to see what happens now with Discovery. But what do they call it? If they bundle them all together into one site, which is my instinct somehow, I don't like the Disney, Hulu, ESPN bundle as much, but that's just me. Do they call it HBO Discovery, Max Discovery, Discover HBO, HBO Discovery Max, Discovery Plus, or just HBO Max? I think, uh, I think you HBO have- is more valuable than Discovery, I think, in terms of a name. I would agree. And you think this could be too big to merge and that it shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> Meanwhile, NBC Comcast, they, Universal, they were thinking of going for HBO, right? They were going to go yeah. for Warner Bros. and HBO. Now, someone said in, in today's fallout, well, they might go for Viacom CBS. What? Yeah, uh, that to me, that should not be. Well, I know we're talking about something that is not even true, in my opinion. Okay. But if, if it were true... I would say as a legislator, yeah, NBC, you would basically have two broadcast networks owned by the same company. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, people could die as a result. Well, okay. they could. Okay, wow. Like actor Norman Lloyd of St. Elsewhere. He oh, died like, at the age wow. of 106. Norman Lloyd, 106. Pretty remarkable. Yeah, there's even a documentary film about him called Who is Norman Lloyd? Or Who is that man? Who is that masked man? He was the last surviving member. You could say that about pretty much anything he's done. The last surviving member of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the Air. That's amazing. Groundbreaking radio groundbreaking theater and groundbreaking film. It's easy to think of Orson Welles as just a filmmaker. He absolutely is a legendary icon forever in radio, a legendary theater director, hugely important stuff. And then he also, of course, went on to make great movies. But Norman Lloyd did not make them. He was supposed to be in Orson Welles' first film project, which was an adaptation of The Heart of Darkness. But 
it fell through like so many Orson Welles projects do. There was work to be done in New York and Norman Lloyd went to New York and Orson Welles never forgave him for decades. He was angry that he left him. And so he didn't get to be in Citizen Kane. However, he did return to Hollywood to be in Alfred Hitchcock's Saboteur. And that probably saved his career. He became lifelong friends with Hitch. He ultimately got producing and directing credits on his multiple TV shows, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and what the other one was called. He directed more episodes than Hitchcock himself, ultimately, and they became great friends. And he was part of the Black. Nobody wanted to work with him. He was starting to get real in trouble. And Hitch said, I want him for my TV show. And the network said, well, we don't know about it. He says, I want him. And he got him. And that's the only reason Norman Lloyd is still around today as an actor. Did a lot of theater, La Jolla Playhouse in California. He was a director, La Jolla, yeah. La Jolla, yeah, director producer, actor, raconteur. Worked with a lot of people. Jean Renoir, Charlie Chaplin. He did stuff on PBS. He directed Steve McQueen in an early episode of Hitchcock. He did Omnibus. And when he was doing Omnibus, his assistant was Stanley Kubrick. That's when you're old enough and you do enough things, all this stuff sort of happens. And then suddenly, this- late in his career, he got the role of a lifetime playing a character on the TV drama St. Elsewhere, one of the more acclaimed shows of all time. He was 67, and the character was supposed to be there for four episodes. He was there for the entire six-season run, the only person to appear late in, uh, in, appear in every episode, and late in his career turned out to be the midpoint. <laughs> Dead yeah. Poet Society, The Age of Innocence. He, at 100, he acted in Amy Schumer's film Trainwreck. He drove himself to the audition when he was 99 years old, which flipped out director Judd Apatow. He's like, where's your driver? He saw Babe Ruth in person at the 1926 World Series. Then, 90 years later, he went to his second World Series in 2017. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just crazy. What an what a interesting career. Never, uh, you know, a lot more interesting than I think in terms of directing and producing and just Knowing everybody and being a great raconteur. When he was a director, in fact, Mm -hmm. Stanley Kubrick was his assistant. I said that. Oh, yeah. I said that. You got to pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) Were you looking stuff up? (laughs) No, no, no. It was, was, anyway. There was was another obit this week, though. Uh, Norman Lloyd was, uh, uh, I like St. Elsewhere a lot. Uh, Big fan of Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere. Uh, But there was another obit, a sad one in Variety this week by Rebecca Rubin. Tell us about it. Uh, well, so you're talking about the, the fact that the, there are no more windows. <laughs> That's right. She um, said, okay. let's pour one out for the 90 day theatrical oh, window. Yeah, but that's like also, it's like, what was it? A slow news week, which we know it was a slow news week because everybody knew this was coming. The fact <laughs> that, you know, this was the opportunity for studios to finally get what they wanted, which is a shorter theatrical exclusive window. Now they want to have their cake and eat it too, because they want to continue charging 65% for those movies, uh, to, to exhibitors, uh, and also, uh, you know, only have them in theaters for a month or 17 days or 45 days. So, but it looks like 45 days is really no 17 days, 30 days, 45 days is not the new normal by any stretch of the imagination. Disney said 45 days for two movies, but Universal made a 17, 30 day window or a 30, 45 day window in the UK. So at the end of this obituary, which, you know, cheekily listed, she wrote something I thought was a little, a little, uh, you know, hopeful rather than accurate. The 90 day theatrical window is survived by a leaner 45 day version in lieu of flowers, go buy popcorn and a movie ticket at your local cinema. I hope the 45 day version becomes the new normal. I'd love to read an article about why 45 days is smart. 
and the way to go for everybody. It's best for the theaters and for the studios, but maybe that'll come around someday. Okay. Um, for those who don't know, Michael Giltz wrote a an article like this for us, which I have yet to edit and post on Celluloid Junkie. But I was actually surprised that you didn't include an obituary to Curtis Fuller, who at the age of 88, he died. He's one of, he's a jazz legend. I mean, this guy worked with, name somebody in jazz, just name them. And John Coltrane. Uh, yes, actually, they were very good friends, but they were best friends. In fact, he was so depressed when John Coltrane died. I think it was of a heroin overdose, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but he died, he died early. It was an untimely death. But uh, he died in 1967. And he left jazz and he went to work of, for all things. He went to work for Chrysler. Okay. And Dizzy Gillespie came, came and said, look, you can't be doing this. You got to come back. Join me on the road. We'll go out on the road. We'll do a world tour. And, and then, you know, you'll be the trombonist and he never looked back. So he was in jazz for the rest of his life. He was on all of these like hit records. Well, well, classic records. Uh, hit is not the word when in jazz, really, usually. That's true. I was also really surprised that, 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 uh, that you didn't include Spencer Silver in our obituary list this week. I, I, I didn't know. Who's Spencer Silver? Oh, you probably use him all the time. The stuff that he invented. He was an inventor uh, that, uh, and, and, he, and he had a lot of perseverance because he created this adhesive, but it wasn't, you know, really, it, it was actually adhesive that was supposed to glue planes together. It was supposed to be used in planes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't work at all. Like it was so unsticky that oh. you could like use it to stick things and then peel it off without, without that sounds, actually. That, that just, sounds bad. Well, yeah, except, and he kept on, he worked for 3M, he was a chemist, and he he kept saying, like, hey, this there's something, we could use this adhesive for something. And his, the, Art Fry, a, a co-worker uh, at 3M, had this problem. And the problem was he would go to church and he had all these, like, uh, like pieces of paper that he would stick in the hymnal, but they would fall out. And he, he, he would stick the paper in so that he could quickly get to the, to the hymn that they, they needed to sing or, or say. And all the pieces of paper would fall out. Well, Art Fry and Spencer Silver got together. They said, put the adhesive on the pieces of paper, put it in a block, and I'll just, you know, guess what? They created post-it notes. Ah, there you go. That was a long way of saying <laughs> they was, created post-it that was, that was a long way. But by God, it, it worked. Next time, leave a post-it note to yourself. Be pithier. Well, also, it's if you went to business school, that case study of mm-hmm. 3M, the way that 3M invented the post-it note, is something everybody studies in business school because it's nope. like a failure turned into a huge success. I love it when you quote the stuff you learn in business school. You look like paperback to hardcover is the classic windowing. Uh, yeah. 3M post-it notes are the classic case study of make use of something that you invent. Figure out what if it's not working for what you want, maybe it works for something else. It's good to know you went to school. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Why did you, you deleted something I I made a note to myself to say a a plea to the New York Times to maybe, maybe retitle some of their, their URLs when they're doing obituaries, because obviously a lot of these obituaries are what's done called a pre-write. You've pre-written the obituary. Mm -hmm. And so when they add them to their website, they must add them years earlier or months or weeks earlier. And so the URL ends Spencer Silver dead. That's the the end of Spencer Silver. Well, that, that pretty much says it. Yeah, like how, Spencer Silver obituary. How about that? Or Spencer Silver obit. What's wrong with dead? 
Spencer Silver dead. Yeah, well, you know, that's just the sad truth, but God bless him. And God bless you for listening. Curtis Fuller, dead. Um, but yes, if you've been listening oh, to oh, us. Oh, you're right. Uh, I, we, I see what you mean. Yeah, Curtis Fuller, dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little abrupt. But I don't yes, like, exactly. I, I don't like passed away, so we don't want to do that. I'll take dead anytime. Michael Gilt's dead. Someday, it'll happen. But not this week and next week. You'll be around for the next episode. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, we're on Spotify, though not in high def. Maybe we do need to go high def now. Uh, but you know what? You can subscribe to us in any one of those podcast aggregators, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. Subscribe to us. Rate and review us if you can in any one of those podcast aggregators. It helps us out when you do that, in fact. Uh, you know what? All of those links to subscribe to us, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, they're all on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's also where you'll find ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call. You can leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. All that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz has a website every week. It's something new, and it's something exciting. What is it this week, Michael? Uh, no points for guessing. It would have been CaliforniaRaisins.com. That's not taken. I mean, somebody owns it, but you can buy it. It's not being used. So then I went to Raisins.com, and as our female listeners might know, oh, those aren't raisins. That's swimwear. Apparently, there's a line of swimwear called Raisins Swimwear. So there's a woman in a bikini by a pool if you go to Raisins.com, which does not help your snacking needs. But By, by the way, if you're if – you're, um, I think maybe the raisins thing there is that she's out by a pool and the sun and then, and then you know, it'll make keep, her keep look like going. a raisin. Keep, no, keep okay. going. Keep okay. going. Well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage on raisins.com, uh, you can, you know, find some of his entertainment coverage on michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.